Hello, literary listeners, and welcome to the Steampunk Dollhouse. My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and your host for the next little while. If you are a returning listener, as usual, you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in. And if this is your first time in the dollhouse, please come in, have a seat, and get settled. Uh, but do be aware that the show is, by necessity, chock block with spoilers. So if that's going to be an issue, you should probably turn back now, uh, read the books that we're talking about, and then come on back to me, and it's okay. I promise I will be here when you get back. Now, it has been a hot minute since I talked to you guys. Uh, a lot of shit's been going on, as usual. <laughs> um, and also, as usual, I want to apologize for the stuffy nose. Um, allergies are wound up. And actually, that brings me into the first thing I wanted to mention today. I know it's we're already halfway through the month, um, but this is, on top of it being uh, International Women's Month, it's also uh, Endometriosis Awareness Month. And this is obviously a subject that is very close to my heart and my personal body. Um, I have endometriosis. I have had it since I was, I don't know, well, since puberty. Um, It is the reason that I had major surgery, um, and it is the reason that I am ill a good portion of my life. Um, I actually was talking to Mr. Stocking one day. I said, I don't even know what it's like to not hurt anymore. Um... It's very, it's, it's, it's a matter of degrees anymore. I'm not saying all this for sympathy or, you know, it's not, it's not a sob story. It's just the way things are. But I'm bringing this up because endometriosis is so endemic. So many people have it. Um, I think that what we've been saying is one in ten. But also what I want to want to make really, really clear, a lot of the, the information will say one in ten women. Um, we need to kind of... Cl- course correct on the talking points because this is we need to remember that transgender men may have still have biologically female reproductive parts if they do they could have this too so uh, you probably know quite a few people who suffer from endometriosis and it's not going to be just cis women it's going to be transgender men as well and um, even after you have surgery, even if you get everything removed, you can still have issues. I had a partial hysterectomy 10 years ago, uh, but I still have my ovaries, so I still have problems. Uh, endometriosis is not fun. It causes a host of symptoms, um, very strange symptoms. It is painful. It can be debilitating. It is psychologically and physically scarring. Um, and more needs to be done, and more is not being done. So, Check out the link in the show notes for endometriosis.org. That's where you can start, get some information. Um, actually, <laughs> a very dear uh, friend of mine, and I don't usually mention people by name on the show. I try not to, but Dr. Failer, uh, he is an English professor at Texas Women's University, and he is also uh, an amazing person. He made a donation to uh, endometriosis awareness this month for me and for another for a friend of mine who also has it um, in our name. So those are the kind of things that you can do. We need more funding. We need more money. We need more help. And moving on to something a little more upbeat. Um, I wanted to first say thank you to Tim for your absolutely amazing iTunes review uh, that you posted recently. Um, wow. It was it was amazing. I, I say amazing a lot. i got to stop that. It was very nice. Uh, it felt really, really good. Um, 
nobody gets into podcasting for glory. Um, and especially with a show as tiny as mine, um, we don't get a whole lot of attention. So when I get a review like that, it's it feels good. Um, it makes me remember why I started this in the first place. And in addition to that, I also wanted to mention, um, interestingly, I had a Podbean review. I guess my show is being somebody, somehow I ended up uploaded to Podbean, um, and it's running through that service as well. Um, we got an email one day, and it said, it was in, this was in, oh, it was a couple, oh, it was within the last month and a half, I guess, and it said, your show has been, has received a review on Podbean, um, and it was only, the, the email only showed me a portion of it, um, saying that they had come over from Clockwork Cabaret, and that I have slid into their second favorite podcast. Um, that is amazing. However, I have no idea who left me this review. None at all. You know why? <laughs> when I went over to Podbean, um, what it did was it tried to, it told me that I needed to claim the show as my own, which I did. And then once I got in there trying to look at it, I couldn't even figure out where comments were. I have no idea how to see the full comment, see who left it. I couldn't find comments at all. Um, it was defeating me. So whoever it was that left that amazing review over on Podbean, thank you. Um, really, that was super cool. Um, I'm glad to know that our cross promos are working. Um, and I hope you continue to enjoy. And if you want to, you know, pop on over to iTunes and leave it there, that would be cool too. Um, let's see. Speaking of attention, <laughs> the aftermath of episode 12 was bonkers, um, because of the number of authors that were involved in that one. Um, the editor, Matthew Bright, he tweeted about it and tagged some of the authors in it, and so it just kind of set up a chain reaction. <laughs> um, so I, I got some, some good feedback from uh, Kay Tempest Bradford and from um, a couple of the other authors. It was, again, super uplifting. Um, it was just, uh, that was all really, really nice thing to have, and I enjoyed that. Um, I'm glad I could could bring them a little bit of happiness, too. I mean, they're doing the Lord's work. They're spreading the good word. Um, we want to keep that up. So, And also, I apologize in advance. Uh, my cat is fucking around right now having some issues in here, so if you hear some crying and whining and scratching, that's baby Gigi. Um, he's kind of an asshole. Let's see. Um, in addition to the stuff that I usually promote, I wanted to put another podcast forward to you guys today that I came across. I actually found it listening to the Daily Zeitgeist from How Stuff Works. Um, she was, they have comedians on there on each episode. Her name is Sarah Schaefer. And she has a podcast called Loner at Coyo Wolf Creek. <laughs> it's her. It's it's futuristic. It's kind of um, in a future. It's Earth or it's America too. I think is what she's calling it. And everybody has there's like special zones where everybody lives. And she lives in a designated loner zone. <laughs> she's by herself, and everything is delivered by a drone mall. Um, but it's just her talking for about half an hour about things that she fondly remembers from America One. Um, it's a really good show, and it's a really, uh, some really scathing commentary on shit that's happening right now, and, um, the shit that's happening right now deserves a lot of scathing commentary, so I highly recommend Loner at Coyo Wolf Creek, um, Sarah Schaefer, 
She is, she's really good. Uh, if you like my shtick, hers is, hers is fantastic. And she doesn't have all the other crap loaded into it that I do. Hers is pretty plain and simple. So go check that out. Um, Frankenstein Chronicles is finally on Netflix. And you guys, you have to go find this. Um, I heard about this a few years ago when it aired. I think it was on BBC or Sky TV, one of the British stations. And it was Sean Bean. <laughs> and it's based um, in the early 19th century. It's based around a series of murders that are happening. And it appears that the murders may have something to do with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, I think, the Frankenstein's been out for 10, 15 years at the time the show takes place. Um, so Mary Shelley is actually in the show, <laughs> which is really cool. Um, but it's it's Sean Bean trying to investigate this. He's a, he's a police officer, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but I heard about the show when it first came out in England years ago, and really, really wanted to see it, and then there was uh, this hubbub that I think it was A&E or AMC, one of those was supposed to have picked it up, but it never got aired, and then Netflix all of a sudden had it, and I didn't even get the notification for it. I turned on Netflix one day. I was sick. Um, it was like it was the last time I had a migraine. I was real sick, and I turned on Netflix, and there it was. There's two seasons, and it is so good, and um, Sean Bean, the whole Sean Bean dies in everything, completely flipped. It's it's fantastic. Go find the Frankenstein Chronicles on Netflix. There's two seasons. I think it's six episodes each. It's not very long, but it is totally worth it. And I think they're supposed to make a third season. So, Frankenstein Chronicles. It is badass. Um, let's see. One thing that I have noticed um, recently, moving into, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's girls in science. Um, something that I have noticed in my time on the interwebs and in the publics. Um, I, within the last, what, 20, 15, 20 years, there's been a, a bigger drive to get girls, or maybe it's 10 years, uh, to get girls into the STEMs, you know, the science and technology and math, and that is amazing. I mean, I remember, I don't math, and part of that is because um, of my learning disability, but also part of that was because you didn't, girls weren't, generally steered toward the math, even in the 80s. Uh, if a girl couldn't do math, it was just, well, she's a girl, she can't do math, and that was that. Um, so the fact that we've put such a big drive into getting girls into STEM is important, but we also need to keep in mind that if a girl doesn't want to go into STEM, that is okay, too. <laughs> it seems almost like now that, that we've worked so hard to get them into it that it's almost insulting if they don't want to do it. Um, what we, I, I just... Same thing that I always say about feminism. Feminism is about the choice. For me, I believe feminism is about a woman's choice to do what she wants to do. If that's to go into science or technology or engineering or mathematics, go for it. If that is to write poetry and be romantic, that's okay too. So we can keep making STEM open to girls, but I don't know that we should keep pushing people to do something that we think that they should be doing because we fought so hard to give them the right to do it, if that makes sense. Um, it's just, it's something that I've noticed, and it's, it's bothered me a little bit. Um, we don't need to denigrate girls for their choices if they don't want to do that. If they want to be pop singers, that's their choice too. Um, because it's all about what they want to do with their lives and their minds and their bodies. Um, give them the informed 
let them make the informed decision. That's so. That's all I was going to say about that. And speaking of students, um, <laughs> boy, the children are rising, aren't they? <laughs> Florida school shooting. Um, I don't even. There's nothing I can say that these kids haven't already said themselves in the last month, and so much better. Um, they're amazing. They are fucking amazing. We have fed these kids on a steady diet of Harry Potter and Hunger Games and Maze Runner and Divergent and all of these dystopian, all of this dystopian science fiction and fantasy. And so, are we really surprised now that they're doing this? That they're taking over? That they are? They're standing up for themselves? It's amazing. And all of these right-wing conservative assholes who keep trying to give them shit, uh, guys, these kids have grown up online, they're better at it than you, you will not beat them, um, they've grown up embedded in social media, this is their, this is their platform, this is their neighborhood, this is their wheelhouse, um, and they're doing an amazing job, it's, it's really incredible, and speaking of the whole, yeah, I, the, librarians and guns thing. I don't fucking know what that's about. I did notice something that keeps popping up, though, and I can never, you can never really get a conservative to give you a good reason for this. They just kind of short-circuit. But what one thing that I have never understood about the argument that making guns illegal won't stop people from buying them um, is that we still make laws against abortion. It doesn't stop women from having them. It just causes women to have dangerous, illegal abortions and probably die. But you cannot get a conservative to explain why it's dumb to make gun laws because people will keep buying them. But it's okay to make abortion laws even though women will keep having them. It's something that's that's been sticking in my craw lately with the, the guns thing. And like I said, the, the librarians, and I don't want a gun. I don't want a gun in a library. Um, it's not that I'm anti-gun necessarily. Um, hunting rifles, shotgun. You want to have a gun, a handgun in your home for the means of protection and safety? Go for it. It's the the, the 50 gun, the stockpiles of guns. It's the AR-15. Um, if you need a semi-automatic to go hunting, you need to find another hobby because first of all, there's not going to be much critter left uh, by the time you're done. But that's bullshit. And I've also heard the argument shooting is fun. I don't know. Um, I've never shot a gun. Like I said, I'm not that I'm necessarily against them. What I'm against is the gluttony. The, the sheer gross um, glut of guns that people seem to want to have. That's the issue and buying so many in such a fast stretch and nobody bats an eye, that's the thing that I have an issue with. Um, there needs to be controls on it. If we're going to put controls on cars, we're going to put controls on women's bodies. We're going to put controls on... Um, it is harder to for a person to pick up their prescription for Oxycontin than it is for a teenager to buy an assault rifle. That's the issue that I have. So uh, we're going to move on from that one as well. Um, <laughs> this last thing that I want to talk about... Um, well, actually, um, two things regarding the ALA. First of all, in regards to the ALA, or in regards to the arming librarians, I forgot if there was one more thing that I had to mention. Now, the ALA, um, 
did issue a joint statement with the American Association of School Librarians. And what they have said is that school librarians work with classroom teachers to provide instruction integral to the curriculum and offer additional information and informal learning opportunities for students. School librarians are invaluable teachers who offer an enriching learning environment for students and colleagues throughout the school. Firearms in our school libraries, as in any other classroom, will undermine the sense of security that is critical to students and divert school librarian attention away from the core focus of student learning. So they released this statement in regards to um, the bill that was they're trying to pass in Florida, the SB 7026. Um, don't arm librarians. That's fucking stupid. <laughs> you are putting a the onus of school protection on librarians, um, and I'm sure there are some badass librarians who have concealed license, concealed carry license. Go for it. Go for it on your own time, outside of school. But there are just too many ways that this can go horribly, horribly wrong in a school library. It's just, it's bad. Um, now, continuing uh, with the ALA. <laughs> um, the statement is great, uh, but we do have reason to believe that the ALA may be compromised. Um, they have an award that they give out every year. It's the James Madison Award um, for f people who champion freedom of information. And I don't know if any of you saw this on Twitter, um, <laughs> the, uh, the backlash, because Daryl Issa was given the James Madison Award this year because of his work with FOIA, uh, the Freedom of Information Act. Um, yeah, Daryl Issa opposes net neutrality. Daryl Issa, who is just, who hid on the roof of his office building because he didn't want to talk to his constituents. Daryl Issa, look his shit up. I, if you don't believe me, he, um, yeah, he's a shitbag. And he got the James Madison Award for protecting government, or for protecting information, protecting transparency. <laughs> there was such a snap out on Twitter over this that when I looked this up, ALA had actually released a statement the next day. It says, thank you for your feedback about yesterday's James Madison Award ceremony. In December, ALA invited nominations for the James Madison Award. On behalf of see, staff from Washington office reviewed members' suggestions and selected recipients and sought further review of award candidates from ALA members in Florida, Illinois, and California. Awardees were selected in line with the description of the award, which recognizes an individual or group for his champion, protected or promoted public access to government information and the public's right to know at the national level. With regard to the Madison Award, Representatives Quigley and ISA have been bipartisan leaders on several of ALA's key government information efforts, including co-funding and co-chairing the Congressional Transparency Caucus together. Representative Issa led the successful enactment of the Bipartisan FOIA Improvement Act and the Data Act. Quigley also advocated for the... We're not worried about Quigley, though. He's another issue. Daryl Issa is the one that um, is pissing me off. Quigley's not great either, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that, that that past performance should be taken into account. Um, so, yeah, not super pleased with the ALA right now, um, especially with as much as I've been trying to champion them in what they do, and then they do something like this. Um, it's really shitty, and it really makes me wonder what that selection committee meeting was like. I can't imagine that everybody was pleased with this. Um, so there's that. Uh, I am trying to keep the, the intro a little shorter. Um, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to, instead of doing all of the info dump in the intro, I'm splitting the info dump now. Um, so the back half, uh, before we close out, that'll be some information about other podcasts and things that are going on. So 
that is um, where we're getting started. So, if you guys will hang on, going to play some Audible and a few promos from friends, and we're going to get ourselves ready and jump into an explanation of the China Mieville Balog Trilogy. So, I will see you guys on the other side. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I recommend Perdido Street Station, book one of the Balog Trilogy by China Mieville. Beneath the towering bleached ribs of a dead ancient beast lies New Crobazon, a squalid city where humans, remades, and arcane races live in perpetual fear of parliament and its brutal militia. The air and rivers are thick with factory pollutants and the strange effluence of alchemy, and the ghettos contain a vast mix of workers, artists, spies, and junkies. A magnificent fantasy rife with scientific splendor, magical intrigue, and wonderfully realized characters told in a storytelling style in which Charles Dickens meets Neil Stevenson. Perdido Street Station offers an eerie, voluptuously crafted world that will plumb the depths of every reader's imagination. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download Perdido Street Station or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. The Story Punks Podcast, a show where we talk about all the punks. So steampunk, diesel punk, cyberpunk, and all the other punks, interviewing tons of artists, authors, musicians, all kinds of creators in this space. Either they've created the genres or they've taken these punk genres to the next level. So the main thing that unites all these punks, what is it? It's the word punk. That's just this beautiful underlying theme of rebellion. And it's this theme of playing with technology. And it's playing with what are the rules of a certain society. And I love the idea of punking time and space and technology. And we're playing with the possible. I'm Cindy Grigg. Visit storypunks.world to learn more and to get involved. Portentous perils in the 23rd century. The year is 2217 and the fifth great steampunk revival chugs forever on. This month, we're all wearing VR goggles that perfectly recreate the actual vista in front of us with the one alteration that now everybody is tipping a top hat in polite greeting. Join me as I recount my many adventures, gasp at the scientific know-how of my aunt, Dr. Erudition Synonym, respectfully at my terribly attractive fiancé, Happiness George, and shake your tiny fists at our evil nemesis, Professor Von Pun, and his beastly gentleman. Featuring monkey butlers. <laughs> this thrilling moment. Does anyone have any ketamine? I think I'm addicted to that now. This. Attention. This is being torn to its This hilarious character cameo from semi-retired national landmark Big Ben. Hans Zimmer. I am Hans Zimmer. And so much more. Ula, ula, I'm loving it. Ula, ula, I'm loving it indeed. Ask your iTunes or off-brand podcast provider to supply you with your free dose of portentous perils in the 23rd century today. 
If you enjoy it, tell your friends. If you don't enjoy it, well, tough. It's not all about you, Carol. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also sponsored by the Judgment Night Radio Hour. Are you a fan of audio drama? Do you enjoy classic pulp fiction in the style of Dashiell Hammett? Macabre southern gothic stories of the likes of Cormac McCarthy? Or stirring drama reminiscent of August Wilson? Then tune in to the Judgment Night Radio Hour. The Judgment Night Radio Hour is an audio drama and fiction anthology podcast featuring lurid, rousing tales of existential angst, metaphysical mayhem, spiritual crisis, sin, repentance, redemption, justice, and judgment. Presented in the style of an old AM gospel radio broadcast, the series is hosted and narrated by the ominous fire of brimstone preacher Reverend Reginald Cephas Weaver III, who gives soul-stirring sermons in the form of southern gothic neo-noir dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. Imagine if Flannery O'Connor directed The Twilight Zone with an all-black cast. This sinister series of short stories and radio plays can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more, follow their Twitter at jnightradio, visit their website on www.judgmentnightradio.com, or like its Facebook page at Judgment Night Radio. Turn or burn, literary listeners, but don't turn that dial. Alrighty, literary listeners. We are ready to get started with China Bieville's The Balog Trilogy. Uh, that is Perdido Street Station, The Scar, and Iron Council. Now, right off the bat, um, when I first read these books years and years ago, I thought it was pronounced. The, the landform, it's uh, the planet this takes place on, It's I thought it was pronounced Baslog, B-A-S hyphen L-A-G. Um, but the audiobook, the first one, they pronounce it Balog, and the third one, I think they pronounce it Balog, but the second one, it's Baslog, so I think it's actually Balog, I'm not sure, we can argue about that, um, because I'm not positive which one it's supposed to be, but that's the landform that this takes place on. Now, as usual, I'm going to go through terms with you guys, I've got the vocabulary list ready, so I hope you all study, there will be a test, um... And this vocabulary list is a bit longer than usual, because, um, man, China Mayville, these books are long. Um, not as long as the Ken Liu books, but they are friggin' long, and there's a lot of information packed into them. So I'm going to go over some terms, and then I'm going to go over, uh, I'm going to go over some general terms, and then the terms that um, have to do with the races that are in the book, and then we'll get into some sciencey stuff. And uh, from there, we'll go into the summaries. So let's start with, um, and actually this term, I did, I had never heard this term before until it was mentioned, I believe, in Clockwork Cairo, uh, gr- the Great Wen. And somebody that is coming into New Crobazon for the first time um, in Perdido Street Station, and they, they call... Um, they call New Crobazon um, the great, a great win. And since I had just read that and I didn't know what it was, I went ahead and looked it up. And it's a disparaging nickname for London. The term was coined in the 1820s by William Cobbett, the radical pamphleteer and champion of rural England. Cobbett saw the rapidly growing city as a pathological swelling on the face of the nation. Um, because a win is actually a sebaceous cyst, so that's gross. The term is quoted in his 1830 work, Rural Rides. 
But what is to be the fate of the great when of all, the monster called by the silly coxcombs of the press, the metropolis of the empire? So, essentially, uh, he was describing London as a big festering boil. Um, that's awesome. And also, right off the bat, I want to say, um, you know how I'm always saying, steampunk doesn't have to be Victorian London. There's so much more than that. Well, <laughs> this is, this new Crobazon especially is almost like an LSD horror show of an already Dickensian nightmare. Um it is definitely taken off of London, but it's so much more than that. This is the 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 Balog trilogy is so much more than just a play off of uh, Victorian London, and we'll get into that more. So let's keep going. Um, history of union busting. I wanted to do a brief description of the union busting. Um, what I found was for here in the states, um, not specifically in London, but it still applies. Now, it dates back to the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century um, when there was rapid expansion in factory, factories and manufacturing capabilities, and more workers were leaving farms to go to factories and mines and other really, really harsh labor. Working conditions were terrible, uh, long hours, low pay, just wall-to-wall health risks, and women and children were involved in this. It wasn't just the men. And the women and children received considerably less pay than the men for doing work that was just as hard and dangerous. Now, the government at that time, there was not a whole lot that was being done to limit these terrible, terrible conditions. Um, and so labor movements in the U.S. and around the world, um, in this industrialized world, they started um, lobbying for better rights and safer, safer conditions. Um, this was, you know, shaped and built by wars and depressions and government policies. There was global competition. So the early years of the, um, this says the early years of the battleground between unions and management, it was very adversarial, often aggressive and hostile. Um, and union busting became a term used by labor organizations and trade unions to describe the activities that may be undertaken by employees, their pro employers, their proxies, workers, and in certain instances, states and governments usually triggered by such event by events such as picketing, card check, worker organizing, and strike actions. And labor legislation has changed the nature of union busting. Um, but if you've there, it's it's mentioned quite a bit in the latter half of the 19th century and uh, U.S. history, I know, because the Pinkertons were involved <laughs> in a lot of union busting, um, and the Pinkertons is a whole other subject, but they were heavily involved in the union busting, um, and they did work on behalf of the man, so that's the, typically, historically, uh, governmental entities, or, or rather corporate entities, uh, don't like unions. Uh, Walmart doesn't like unions, so if that's the explanation you need, there you go. Uh, let's see, moving on. Press ganged. Okay, press ganging or impressment. Um, it's the act of taking men into a military or naval force by compulsion, with or without notice. Um, navies of several nations do use force recruitment. The large size of the British Royal Navy in the Age of Sail meant impressment was most commonly associated with Britain. It was used by the Royal Navy in wartime beginning in 1664 and during the 18th and early 19th centuries as a means of crewing warships. Um, although apparently legal sanction for the practice can be traced back to the time of Edward I of England. The Royal Navy impressed many merchant sailors as well as some sailors from other mostly European nations. 
People liable to impressment were eligible men of seafaring habits between the age of 18, 18 and 55 years. But non-seamen were impressed as well, though not as often. So you could be grabbed and pressed into service, and you either do it or most likely you will be put to death. So there you go. Uh, pick one. <laughs> this next one, um, it's a mythological creature that we'll see in the scar. Uh, it's called Navank, and I didn't know until I looked at I didn't realize that it was real. I looked it up, and um, one of the descriptions is God Whale. Uh, it's a lake monster from Welsh mythology, and the description varies because in the in the Wikipedia it, it describes it as variously resembling a crocodile, a beaver, or a dwarf-like creature, sometimes said to be a demon, um, and the lake in which it dwells is also varies. I'm not going to pronounce those lake names because they are Welsh, <laughs> um, but in the scar, the creature is more of a whale-type creature, I think. We don't really get a good description because it's so fucking huge. Um, so that's an avonk. Uh, this next one is really gross. <laughs> a moon calf is means a monstrous birth, uh, the abortive fetus of a cow or other farm animal. The term is occasionally applied to an abortive human fetus, and the term derives from the once widespread superstition present in many European folk traditions that such malformed creatures were the product of the sinister influence of the moon on field development. So, ladies, watch that full moon. It might have an effect on your baby. Uh, that's a moon calf. Okay, now this next term, um, I'm still not real sure about this one. He uses it in Iron Council. Uh, it's how the um, revolutionaries uh, greet each other or speak to each other. They use the word, and what it is, it's chaverum. And it's, what the way he describes it, um, a category stolen from an old language, chaver, they said back, comrade equal conspirator. That's how he uses it in the book. When I looked it up, um, what I found was Jews who are engaged in religious observance and have some Jewish education or diaspora Jews who feel connected to Israel and have spent time there. Um, it, the way that he uses it is almost like comrade, um, like in the old socialist revolutionary groups type thing. So that one I'm still not real sure of, but I'm sure somebody out there will let me know if I'm wrong. Now, we're going to go over just some of the races in the book, because there's a lot, and most of them, once I started researching it, appeared to be based off of actual mythological creatures from all over the world, uh, which is pretty awesome. So, uh, the first one we're going to talk about <laughs> is the Kepri. Now, there is a race in the book called the Kepri. Um, the women are the... The, the female Kepris have humanoid female bodies that are bright red. Their skin is red. Uh, but regular, normal, humanoid female bodies. But their head is a scarab beetle. It is literally a fully formed beetle <laughs> with legs and all as their head. And then they have this human body walking around underneath it. And they, I mean, it's it's got everything because they talk about how the head legs move and there's little wings and all this stuff. And um, was one of the main characters in the first book. Lynn is a Kepri, a female Kepri, and she can't speak. Um, when the Kepri communicate with each other, they do it with these chemical spray. Um, that's how they they talk to each other. So when Lynn wants to talk to non Kepri, she uses sign language. Uh, she can hear and understand. She just can't vocalize. Um, 
so they literally just had, and, and the, the male Kepri are just dumb, mindless creatures that are there for procreation, essentially. Uh, they are beetles, just big, huge scarab beetles in the mating processes. <clears throat> Something you have to experience for yourself. <laughs> I highly, I highly recommend reading that part. The audiobook is really, it really makes it interesting. Um, but so where that comes from, when I looked it up, Kepri is actually a god in the ancient Egyptian religion, and he was principally depicted as a scarab beetle, though in some tomb paintings and funerary papyri, he is represented as a human male with a scarab as a head. He is also depicted as a scarab in a solar bark held aloft by none, and the scarab amulets that the Egyptians used in jewelry and as seals uh, were meant to represent Kepri. And then we've got the Vodyanoi. Um, now, this is from Slavic mythology, Eastern European mythology. Um, the Vodjanoi is a male water spirit. Um, it's the same creature as the Vodnik in Czech fairy tales and the Wasserman or the Nix of German fairy tales. Uh, Vodjanoi is said to appear as a naked old man with a frog-like face, a greenish beard, and long hair. And his body is covered in algae and muck and usually fist scales. He does have webbed paws instead of hands, a fish's tail, and eyes that burn like red-hot coals. Uh, he usually rides along his river on a half-sunk log, making loud splashes. And consequently, he's often dubbed father, grandfather or forefather by the local people. Uh, local drownings are said to be the work of the Vodianoi. And when angered, the Vodianoi break dams, um, wash down water mills, and drown people and animals. And so fishermen, millers, and beekeepers for some reason make sacrifices to appease him and he will uh, sometimes drag people down to his underwater dwelling to serve him as slaves. Now the Vodianoi in um, the Balog trilogy they are fat they are overweight, they are large big, so essentially they are just big blubbery water creatures um, and they have to stay wet or it will kill them. Um, they will die. <laughs> There's one particularly very charming one um, described in, I think, Perdido, um, who only changes the water in his tub like once a month. <laughs> it's really disgusting. Um, so <laughs> that's the Vodianoi. Now, this next one. Um, I had actually heard of the name but the creature before, um, the Garuda. Now, in the books, there the Garuda are bird creatures, but they are like really bird creatures. They are humanoid, but they have big, beautiful, um, almost falcon-like wings. They have, you know, they're covered in feathers. They have beaks. They have taloned hands and feet. So they are upright walking birds, essentially. Um, the Garuda itself, the legend comes from a bird-like creature found in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain mythology. Uh, he's variously the vehicle mount for Vishnu, a Dhamma protector, and Astasena in Buddhism, and the Yaksha of the Jain Tirthankara Shantanatha. I hope I didn't butcher that too bad. Uh, Garuda is described as the king of the birds and almost a kite-like figure. If you, a kite is a type of bird. Um, he's shown either in zoomorphic form, a giant bird with partially open wings, or in the anthropomorphic form, a man with wings and bird features, which is what we have in the Balog trilogy. He's generally a protector with power to swiftly go anywhere, ever watchful, and an enemy of the serpent. He is also known as Tarkshia and Vinateya. 
Uh, Garuda is a part of, he's actually a part of the state insignia in India, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, and Indonesia. And the Indonesian official coat of arms is centered on the Garuda. Now, some of you, if you know that term, um, if you've ever watched the show Lost Girl, uh, the big bad that they were fighting, I believe, in season two, um, that can only be defeated by a hydra, a snake. Um, it was the Garuda. He's not like, but that Garuda, aside from uh, the bird thing and the enemy of the serpent, um, wasn't really like this description. So that is the Garuda. Now, I know you've probably heard of these. I think Grindylows. Um, I think Grindylow was in Harry Potter. I can't remember. I know there were mer people, but I can't remember if the Grindylow were too. Now, in folklore, the Grindylow is a creature that originated in the English counties of Yorkshire and Lancashire. And what I didn't know, or Lancashire, sorry. What I didn't know is that it's thought to be um, connected to Grendel the creature from Beowulf. In many old English charters where it is seen in connection with mirrors, bogs, and lakes. And Grindylow are said to grab children with their long sinewy arms and drown them if they come too close to the water's edge. Uh, Grindylow have been used as a boogeyman figure to frighten children away from pools, marshes, and ponds where they could drown. And the Grindylow in the book, we read about them in The Scar, uh, the second book. They are horrifying. They are just they're very nightmarish, um, super creepy. Now, one of the other that I wanted to describe, um, Anopheli, the Anopheli, Anopheli, <laughs> it's hard to say. That is actually what Anoph the Anopheles is actually a genus of mosquito, um, described, named and described in 1818. Um, it can transmit human malaria, um, but there are mosquito people in the book, and they are called the Anopheliae. Um, and the men are regular old humanoid figures with, like, <laughs> they're described as having rectum faces <laughs> with the way their mouths are shriveled up. But the female Anopheliae are wild and driven by... Um, bloodlust they will suck you dry uh because they're they're driven by an insatiable hunger is the way it's described and they can't so they have trouble they can't talk really and they have trouble communicating their thoughts because of the hunger if they can eat get enough to eat then they can actually calm down a little bit and talk but that doesn't happen very often and they are um exiled to a particular island because at one point, a thousand years before the book, there was a, what was called the malarial queendom, and apparently it was really awful. So that's the mosquito people, which we encounter in the scar. Um, there's other races in the book, like the cactusae, but I couldn't find any analogous um, mythological creatures. The cactusae are literally giant cactus people. They're like seven feet tall, um, walking cactuses. <laughs> they have wooden bones, and they have the pricklies. In order for them to function and move about in a non-cactusae society, they will pluck some of their spines so they don't hurt anybody. Uh, they're really hard to kill. They bleed sap. And they have these unbelievable bows called rive bows that will just rip you in half. Um but like I said, I couldn't find any any analogy or anything analogous. And then there's also types of vampires um, that we learned about in the scar, specifically. Um, there's Abdead, there's Deadman, um, there's High. There's part of this takes place, I believe, in High Cromlech. It's 
that part gets a little confusing with all the different dead people and the zombies. We don't because we don't ever actually see it. We just hear stories about it. So that is uh, hitting on some of the races. Now the science stuff, <laughs> which oh oh, and I'm sorry. Um, actually, one more um, quote unquote race that we need to discuss is the remades um, because the remades are a big portion of the social. Um, dystopian aspect of this um, the remades are people who have literally been remade um, sometimes for business or work purposes, industrial purposes um, but most often as punishment it's really terrible, it's really horrible some of the things that are done um, and I'm ta- we're talking just this is, it's more than just plastic surgery and it's not plastic surgery it's the best example I can give is um, <laughs> there is a uh, one um, particular character that you'll hear about called Toro and Toro pops up in a few different places in the books um, Toro was a woman who when we first we don't we don't know the name at first we, in the first book we hear about a woman who has been punished uh, her child died because of her neglect I think she was a drug addict and so her baby died because of her neglect. And so the judge ordered her to be punished by having her dead child's arms attached to her forehead. And then later on in another book, another book she'll hear about Toro. And it takes it takes a while before you connect that what they're talking about is this woman whose baby's arms have been attached to her head. Um, yeah, it's it's insane. There's a, there's another guy. Um, He's like a Robin Hood type figure. He's called Jack Half a Prayer. Um, <laughs> and Jack Half a Prayer, when he was punished, he was punished by having one of his arms removed, or like his hand removed, and a mantis claw was put in its place, a praying mantis claw, giant claw, thus Jack Half a Prayer. So that is what remaking is, and it is terrible. And it is done through a process called thaumaturgy. Now, a thaumaturgy is the capability of a magician or a saint to work magic or miracles. Um, Isaac Bonewitz defines thaumaturgy as the use of magic for non-religious purposes, the art and science of wonder working, using magic to actually change things in the physical world. It is sometimes translated into English as wonder working. And a practitioner of thaumaturgy is a thaumaturge, a thaumaturgister, a miracle or Thaumaturgist or a miracle worker, I can't read. In the 16th century, the word thaumaturgy entered into the English language, meaning miraculous or magical powers. And the word was first anglicized and used in the magical sense in John Dee's book, Mathematical Preface to Euclid's Elements in 1570. And he mentions an art mathematical called thaumaturgy, which giveth certain order to make strange works of the sense to be perceived and of men greatly to be wondered at. In Dee's time, the mathematics referred not merely to the abstract computations associated with the term today, but to physical mechanical devices which employed mathematical principles in their design. These devices operated by means of compressed air, springs, strings, pulleys, or levers were seen by unsophisticated people as magical devices which could only be made with the aid of demons and devils. Now, in within the Balog series, there are biothaumaturges, or what they're called, and they're the ones that work this art and science of turning people into horrific things. <laughs> and it's not always horrific, and we'll talk more about that in the second part, but yeah, it's it's usually used, and it's literally, they have literal punishment factories where this happens to people. And it's just 
some of these judges just get fucking whimsical with with the changes and the, the, the things that they order for people. It's just, it's horrible. Uh, now, one of the big concepts throughout the first book, um, there's the, the main character, his name's Isaac Dandergrim Nebulin. He is a physicist, a scientist. Um, he's obsessed with chaos energy. And so one thing that keeps coming up is perpetual motion. And uh, what that is, perpetual motion is the motion of bodies that continues indefinitely. A perpetual motion machine is a hypothetical machine that can work indefinitely without an energy source. Now, this kind of machine is impossible as it would violate the first or second law of thermodynamics. And these laws of thermodynamics apply even at very grand scales. For example, the motions and rotations of celestial bodies, such as planets, may appear to be perpetual, but are actually subject to many processes that slowly dissipate their kinetic energy, such as solar, uh, solar, wind, interstellar, medium resistance, gravitational radiation, and thermal radiation. So they won't keep moving forever. Thus, machines that extract energy from finite sources will not operate indefinitely because they're driven by the energy stored in the source, which will eventually be exhausted. Uh, a common example is devices powered by ocean currents whose energy is ultimately derived from the sun, which itself will eventually burn out. Uh, machines powered by more obscure sources have been proposed but are subject to the same inescapable laws and will eventually wind down. In 2017, new states of matter, time crystals, um, were discovered in which, uh, on a microscopic scale, the component, at component atoms are in continual repetitive motion, thus satisfying the literal definition of perpetual motion, but they don't constitute a perpetual motion machine in the traditional sense or violate thermodynamic laws because they are in a quantum ground state, so no energy can be extracted from them. They have motion without energy. Um, now, if you're like me and you're not familiar with the four laws of thermodynamics, they are, let's see, the zeroth. Is it zeroth? I'm not really sure. Not a scientist. Um, the zero law of thermodynamics if two systems are in thermal equilibrium with a third system, they are in thermal equilibrium with each other. This law helps define the concept of temperature. The first law of thermodynamics, I cannot talk today, damn. The first law of thermodynamics, <laughs> when energy passes as work, as heat, or with matter, into or out of a system, the system's internal energy changes it according to the law of the conservation of energy, which we all learned that in school. Uh, equivalently, perpetual motion machines of the first kind, machines that produce work with no energy input, are impossible. The second law of thermodynamics, in a natural thermodynamic process, the sum of the entropies of the interacting th thermodynamic systems increases. Equivalently, perpetual motion machines of the second kind, machines that spontaneously convert thermal energy into mechanical work, are also impossible. Now, the third law of thermodynamics, the entropy of a system approaches a constant value as the temperature approaches absolute zero. With the exception of non-crystalline solids, the entropy of a system at absolute zero is typically close to zero and is equal to the natural logarithm of the product of the quantum ground states. And I promise having a very, very basic general understanding of these concepts will help with uh, Perdido Street Station because it's it gets a little deep. Um, China Mieville, he's kind of like Ken Liu. His, his, his knowledge runs very deep and very wide. <laughs> 
So you've got to you got to you got to understand the concepts uh, that they're talking about in order to really understand what's happening. Now, the final term that we're going to talk about is super important in the first book and actually the second book as well, um, torque. It's um, moment or moment of force. Uh, let's see, torque moment or moment of force is rotational force. Just as a linear force is a push or a pull, a torque can be thought of as a twist to an object. In three dimensions, the torque is a pseudo vector for point particles. It is given by the cross product of the position vector and the force vector. And there's um, torque is a is a big deal in Perdido. Um, again. Uh, the quantum mechanics, the chaos energy, the torque, uh, it's all really, really important, and we'll talk more about that, um, and the, the horrible things that torque did um, during a war in the first book. Now, to give you just general basic summaries, because um, there's so much that happens in these books, <laughs> it is bonkers, but Perdido, for Perdido Street Station... Uh, Isaac Dandrogram Nebulin has spent a lifetime quietly carrying out his unique research, but when a Garuda comes to him, Isaac is faced with challenges he has never before fathomed. The Garuda's request is scientifically daunting, and Isaac is sparked by his own curiosity and an uncanny reverence for this curious stranger. While Isaac's experiments for the Garuda turn into an obsession, one of his lab specimens demands attention. A brilliantly colored caterpillar that feeds on nothing but a hallucinatory drug and grows larger and more consuming by the day. What finally emerges from the silken cocoon will permeate every fiber of new Krobazin, and not even the ambassador of hell will challenge the malignant terror it invokes. And yes, there is an ambassador to hell in new Krobazin. <laughs> there is an embassy and there is an ambassador. Uh, that's a really interesting discussion, too. But in the first one, um, Isaac is approached by a Garuda who has no wings. Um, Yagarek has no wings. And when he Isaac first... He, he hears about uh, Grim Nebulin, the scientist. Grim Nebulin, the rogue scientist. And so when he first approaches Isaac, and he's got a cloak on, and so it looks like you can see the, the imprint of his wings under the cloak because they're very big, but when he takes the cloak off, it's a wooden frame that he's wearing on his shoulders to make it look like he still has his wings because his wings being gone is... It's it's an embarrassment. It's, um, it's a horrible, traumatic thing that happened to him, and what we find out later, there's a reason for it. Um, his wings were removed as punishment, um, and we'll get more into that about... Um, the Garuda punishments and their their concept of choice and consent. We'll get into that in the next uh, in the second part. So, what happens is Yagarek approaches Isaac. He wants Isaac's helps to fly again, um, which is in is in you know defiance of the strictures that he has wings removed. He shouldn't fly anymore, but he he leaves um, the Kimmick. He leaves his people. He comes to Isaac. He wants to fly again. And Isaac is an obsessive, compulsive scientist. He can't stop. And so he decides to study flight and gets all of these creatures into his lab to study them, including uh, these caterpillar, this caterpillar that turns into something really, really horrific that threatens the entire city. Um, and it's, it is fucking gnarly. <laughs> it's weird. Um, so that's the first book. The second book, The Scar... Um, takes place uh, within a year or 18 months of the events of the first book. And it takes you a second when you realize the name of the character, the main character in the second book, Abella's Coldwine. It takes you a minute, 
And you'll probably, if you have the Kindle version of uh, Perdido Street Station, you'll want to hit that search and search her name because she's only mentioned once. She was uh, Isaac's lover before, you know, like four or five years before the events of Perdido Street Station. Her and Isaac um, were together for some time before he met Lynn. But because of the events of the first book and what Isaac and his friends did, um, essentially challenging the entire um, political and governmental structure of Necrobazin, everyone and everyone that Isaac knew, anyone he had any even tangential connection with is being hunted and um, arrested. So Bellis gets scared. She takes off. And Bellis is very accomplished in her own right. She's a linguist. She's written books about languages that nobody else can speak. Um, she takes off. And essentially, um, the, just the summary for the book is aboard a vast seafaring vessel, a band of prisoners and slaves, their bodies are made into grotesque biological oddities or being transported to a fledgling colony of Necrobazin. But the journey is not theirs alone. They are joined by a handful of travelers, each with a reason for fleeing the city. Among them is Bellis Coldwine, a renowned linguist whose services as an interpreter grant her passage and escape from horrific punishment. For she is linked to Isaac Dandergrim Nebulin, the brilliant renegade scientist who has unwittingly unleashed a nightmare upon Necrobazin. For Bellis, the plan is clear. Live among the new frontiersmen of the colony until it's safe to return home. But when the ship is besieged by pirates on the swollen ocean, the senior officers are summarily executed. The surviving passengers are brought to Armada, a city constructed from the hulls of pirated ships, a floating landless mass ruled by the bizarre duality called the Lovers. On Armada, everyone is given work, and even remades live equal to humans, cactusae, and cray, yet no one may ever leave. And I forgot to mention the cray. There are cray people as well. Um, they're crayfish people. Those come up in the second book. Um, and actually, this description, I pulled this out. Um, I can't remember from wiki or where, but it's actually not correct. Armada is not ruled by the lovers. The lovers are one set of rulers. Um, what Armada is is awesome. Essentially, Armada is this thousand-year-old floating landmass isn't really a good term for it either because it's not it's it's constructed of ships ships that have been grafted on that have been captured and grafted on over a thousand years until it's become i think they say it's like one square mile wide it's not huge but it's it's packed full of people and this is where the press ganging comes in um they capture ships they kill the highest the highest ranking officers because they'll be the hardest to um re-educate, they take everybody aboard, they go back to Armada, you are given jobs, because Bellis essentially becomes the librarian, or rather a librarian on the ship, um, but there's, there are, they're like parishes or boroughs, they're called writings, and each writing is ruled by a different person, so the lovers uh, rule one particular writing, I think Garwater writing, but they are very forceful and um, really fucking creepy. They have identical scars. Um, at first, we just see the scars on their faces. We'll become uh, acquainted with the scarring on their body later. They scar the fuck out of each other. They, they, it's something that they do. It's one of the rituals that they do together. Um, and that there's a whole discussion about what lo what is really love and what is obsession. Um, and so the lovers have a plan for Armada. Um, and it's <laughs> it's capturing an Avonk, the the giant uh, god whale, because Armada, the way Armada moves, 
it doesn't just float. For the most part, they just let it float around. Uh, unless there's a particular area they want to go, then they have tugboats that pull it. But they go like a mile a day. With the Avonk, they can go like five miles a day. But that's a big process to capture an Avonk because nobody's even really sure if they exist. And then they have to try to capture it, and that's a whole big, a whole big um, expedition to do that. And meanwhile, Bellis, who was trying to get away from New Crobazon... <laughs> hates being our armada, doesn't want to be there because she holds New Crobazon in her mind as home. It will always be home, even if she's not safe there right now. She's very conflicted. Um, so that's uh, The Scar, which actually, The Scar is my favorite one of all of the books. The Scar is the one I've read the most. I, I don't know, I can't explain it. But there's also a character called Tanner Sack, and Tanner is a remade who was on the prison ship. And I don't think they ever, if I recall correctly, they never really tell us what Tanner had done. Uh, he's an engineer, we knew that, but we never knew what he did to uh, be punished, but he's punished by having these fucking tentacles <laughs> attached to his chest, um, which seems a horrible thing at first. It will become um, important later, and we'll get into that again in the second half, as usual. Now, the third book is called Iron Council, and this one I haven't read quite as much as the first two. Um, I just I didn't get into it as much, but it is still important. And for this one, it is a time of wars and revolutions, conflict and intrigue. And New Crobazon is being ripped apart from within and without. War with the shadowy city-state of Tesh and riding on the streets at home are pushing the teeming city to the brink. A mysterious masked figure spurs strange rebellion while treachery and violence incubate in unexpected places. In desperation, a small group of renegades escapes from the city and crosses strange and alien continents in search of a lost hope. In the blood and violence of New Crobazon's most dangerous hour, there are whispers. It is the time of the Iron Council. <laughs> um, and so New Crobazon is has always been when when you especially when you read Perdido, you see it's always been a city on the brink. Um, but now it's this this takes place some decades, I believe, after uh, the Perdido and the Scar. Um, and so it's finally it's it's coming to it's 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 coming to that precipice where it's gonna to bubble over, um, and this is where we get into the revolutionaries and um, the chavroom, the social policies, and um, the union bust. Although there there is union busting that happens in the first one as well, and it's pretty gnarly. Um, but there's a group that is. Um, an homage to a man named Benjamin Flex, who was in the first book. He was a, a revolutionary. He was a, a butcher or a, a meat. He worked in a meat processing plant, but he ran a little newspaper called the Renegade Rampant, and it was a seditious newspaper. He ends up dying um, horribly. And this group called the Flexible Puppet Theater, they stage puppet shows that are uh, seditious and incendiary puppet shows. <laughs> Um, so that's Iron Council. So that is our first three books, or our three books, um, with summaries and some scientific explanations for you guys. Now, as per the usual, we are going to take a break. We're going to hear promos. We're going to hear a lovely song that I think fits perfectly with the uh, the idea of uh, Perdido Street Station especially. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the books a little bit more in depth and why they're important and why I like these books so much, even though they are taken off of Victorian London, which I make fun of all the time. Um, so we're going to take a break, and then we will be back with a deeper dive into the great win of Perdido and Necrobazin. 
We'll see you guys in just a minute. A body falls past the window. <laughs> you put, put it down and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Immediately peg him as a cogman. So we've known each other for years. It's too much. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Damn. We had a... Oh, my God. Oh. So you took money from him, huh? We talked about this earlier. He <laughs> <laughs> was attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. <laughs> Are you constantly checking for traps? <laughs> the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast is available at rigstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. We've just discovered a very rare bit of audio from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Let's have a listen. I, Winston Churchill, wholeheartedly believe... At the Clockwork Cabaret is the finest example of steampunk radio programming. Never before have I heard anything quite so marvelous, and I doubt I shall ever hear anything like it again. Calpurnia, continue on your journey, broadcasting your marvelous music, and sail on to glory. If you would like to find out more about this program, Please check out clockworkcabaret.com or clockworkcabaret.podbean.com or follow us on Twitter at clockworkcabaret. That's C-L-O-C-K-W-R-K cabaret.
Are you a steampunk? A Victorian goth? A weird west enthusiast? A sky pirate? Or just steam curious? If so, then join the Texas Steampunk Connection as we review and enjoy steampunk books, movies, comics, games, films, and events all over the great state of Texas. Come along with your hosts, Flavio, Erica, and Thax, as we enjoy steampunk adventures and share our discoveries with you. Something, 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 hats, corsets, boots, etiquette, pistachios, a teapot, bullocks. Find us on Facebook and fanboytv.com or wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Goggles, gears, something, something, and always, always mind, mind your, your gauges. The year is 1885, but not one that would be familiar to you. Message for you, sir. You know, it is tiresome having the world's greatest detective as one's mother. Don't be silly. What's the word? I have a half dozen armed with cutlasses. Cutlasses? These fine gentlemen behind us? Yes, father. You and Gwendolyn deal with them? Yes, father. Ha! Hurrah! Target practice! No guns, you silly girl. This is an airship. (laughs) Gwendolyn, are you all right, my dear? Cyril just knocked out my swordsman! <laughs> the continued security and stability of the Empire relies on your efforts. So, you know who I am. I do. That's why I took your stick. Weapons out, men! <laughs> <laughs> but he's gone! Nutscores, idiots! We mustn't let him escape! What is our next ritual? Traditionally, it is walking out. All right. Hang on. Oh, my! Oh, Albert, you're not a thing. We are much amused. Join us in one week as we once again visit with the first family of the realm, Brass. Welcome back, welcome back. And that was The City by Unwoman, and I was so goddamn psyched to find that on Free Music Archive. Um, I love Unwoman. She is an amazing musician. It's a really, really good song, and I highly recommend that you go familiarize yourself with her if you haven't already. Uh, also, she's pretty cool. I've had a few opportunities to trade some chit-chat with her on Twitter, and she is very nice, very interesting lady, so go check her out. Now, on to the books. Um in an interview when Perdido was coming out, Mievel himself, the way he described it was uh, basically a secondary world fan- secondary world fantasy with Victorian-era technology. So rather than being a feudal world, it's an early industri- industrial capitalist world of a fairly grubby police state kind. <laughs> so that is how um, Mr. Mievel described uh, the book himself. Now, while I'm talking about these books, I am also going to be um, one of the ref- the references that I'm going to be using in this. There's two. Um, I'm using Clockwork Futures, the science of steampunk and the reinvention of the modern world, and then I'm also using Steampunk and 19th Century Digital Humanities. Um, there's links for both of those in the notes, so you can go take a look at those books. But they're books that I use a lot. <clears throat> now, Perdido is. Um, the way it was been described, um, it's his trilogy is a mix of Dickensian ideas. Um, in that New Crobazon is very London-like. It's got um, 
bureaucratic corruption, starvation, it's got racism, but then there's these weird fantasy elements that um, depict interdimensional and outer dimensional creatures. You know, there's magic, there's weird science, and um, one of the overriding things for me that um, I ended up picking up on is loss. Um, who we are when we lose something that is integral to us. Um, and not necessarily a physical part of ourselves, but a concept. Um, you can see this with in the first one with Yagarek, the Garuda, the loss of his wings. Um, and then in the second one, Bellis, the loss of Necrobas in itself, uh, her home, even though the city wasn't perfect by any stretch, and she was running away from it because it was <laughs> hunting her, um, it was still home, and she still eventually wanted to go back. Now, as I mentioned, um, crisis is a big part of this. Crisis magic, crisis energy is a big part of this, and chaos magic. And New Crobazon is a city that is always in crisis mode. It is always on the brink. It is always hovering. It is old. It is, you know, a thousand years old or more. It's decayed. It's corrupt. It's... Um, Yagarek, which we learn later, it's Yagarek. He describes it as this dusty city dreamed up in bone and brick, a conspiracy of industry and violence steeped in history and battened down power. Now, the titular um, Perdido Street Station, that is, there's trains that run through the city, of course, um, but Perdido Street Station is special, and it's said, um, the station, the architect of that station eventually went mad because of his creation. And what I mentioned earlier about um, the ambassador of hell and the, the embassy, this is located in Perdido Street Station. Um, but it's a transportation hub. It's an economic center. And it is also home to the tallest tower in the city, which is called the Spike. That is where the militia is. Um, and it's almost like a, a panopticon. Uh, from which the whole city is, is put under surveillance. And it's an oppressive government. Um, and again, it will drive Bellis into exile and others into exile. But there's you know constant strikes. There are dissidents all over the place all the time. Um, and they will be hunted down. They will be tortured. And it usually happens there within uh, Perdido Street Station. So I mentioned in uh, the first part about um, the dissidents at Iron Council uh, going by the name of the Flexible Puppet Theater based off of, as an, or as an homage to Benjamin Flex, um, who was the editor of The Runnigate Rampant. Um, when Flex is arrested, he is being held in the spike. And he will never, he will not leave the spike alive. Um, so with this first book, this is where we get hit with all the major concepts of New Crobazon. Um and one thing that I noticed um, in this one, and especially, and also in uh, the Scar with Bellis, is that there's a an extreme selfishness, sort of that seems that that crops up um, in the wake of a mass, wake of a giant of a large trauma. Um, and and I, you know, arguing not arguing with myself, but you know, thinking is this is this selfishness or is this self protection in the face of massive trauma? Um, and obviously in the first one, the biggest trauma that we're, that we are 
um, made privy to is Yagarek and the fact that he does not have his wings, and he wants Grim Nebulin to help him to fly again. Now, when Grim Nebulin is trying to figure out why Yagarek no longer has wings, what Yagarek keeps saying is that he was guilty of choice theft. Um, and that's very, very abstract and very, you know, very hard to uh, to understand for anyone who's not a Garuda. But the way the Garuda see the world or see individuality, that individuals have concrete individuality. When you are convicted of crime, you're convicted of choice theft, you become abstract. Uh, you are no longer valid. You are no longer a legitimate creature or legitimate Garuda. Because there is no greater crime to the Garuda than choice theft. Now, what he was accused, or what he was, his sentence was, um, his verdict was choice theft in the second degree with utter disrespect. What we eventually find out, because when Isaac is, is trying to research this, um, and he's told it could be anything. Um, it, it You could have taken food away from someone and thus removed their choice of whether or not they wanted to eat that food. What Yagarek did essentially boils down to he raped a female Garuda. He took away her choice to consent or not to him by raping her. Um, so it wasn't the rape itself that was punished. It was the loss of choice. It was the taking away of her choice that was punished because that's, like I said, that, that's what they consider uh, the highest. Now, and because of the, and the utter disrespect is what he did. If you, again, if we go back to the food metaphor, if Yagarek had taken food from this woman because he had none and he was hungry, then it would have been with choice theft with respect because he was just trying to feed himself. He had no food. But this was choice theft in the second degree with utter disrespect because he took the choice away from this woman as to whether or not she would consent to have sex with him. So that's that, that brings about, you know, the... the into a discussion of consent and choice and how you view those things. And is it, do you view all choice removal the same way? It's, <laughs> like I said, there's a lot of things in here that are going to make you think. Um, now, one of the big things that um, is going on in all of these books is uh, the concept of Xenians, which is essentially non-humans and not people from initially from New Corobazon. Um And we all, <laughs> I think we're all familiar with xenophobia now, especially in America. Well, in America and abroad, we know what xenophobia is because our president has xenophobia. Uh, a lot of people on the right have xenophobia. And so Xenians are how the non-human races are, um, are, are described. Um, they are, there's no officially sanctioned violence against them, but it's it's looked past when a violence is done to them. Um, and then, as we mentioned earlier, the remades, and what you'll also, what will also end up coming up to, or coming in contact with are the freemades, because um, remade is R-E-M-A-D-E-S, one word, remade. The freemades, it's a little F, and then remade. The freemades are the remades who have run away, who have gotten free, who have escaped. Um, and like I said, now some of them are remade to a purpose. Um, there's a terrible, horrible 
uh, kingpin in the city called Mr. Motley. And the creatures that they'll deal with that I talked about, um, the moth, the, the caterpillar that turns into a big terrifying moth thing, um, you can't look at those things direct head on. Their wings will mesmerize you and then they suck the life force from you or like your memories and your, your energy. It's really weird. Um, but you can't look directly at them. You can only look at them through a mirror, which for most people means putting on a helmet with, you know, going backward with the mirrors on. But Mr. Motley has some remades made with their heads literally twisted, <laughs> twisted around <laughs> so that they can. And then they have mirrors attached to their shoulders. Yeah. It's, Bonkers crazy. Motley himself is, has choice has purposefully had himself remade into this. Well, he's Motley and it's horrible. Uh, so the remades are there. Some of them, some are remade um, purposely to become sex workers, but you also find a lot of remades, um, men and women and Xenians of all kinds who, because of their punishment, it's clear that they, they've been punished for something um, they may not be able to get a legitimate, not legitimate, but they may not, the only work that may be available to them is sex work, uh, because there's always going to be a market for the strange and unusual. Now, in the middle of all of this, um, we're also going to be made aware of the con- a construct god or a construct consciousness <laughs> that has arisen in the city, um, with in Isaac's laboratory, he shares his lab space with two other um, scientists. And there is a cleaning bot, a sweeper bot, that doesn't work right. It's always malfunctioning. And one day, a strange man shows up, says he's from the service to repair the bot. He does something uh, magical and then leaves. And what we find out is that these punch card steam-driven constructs? They're prone to viruses um, that can become that can happen from an accidental skip of a flywheel. I mean, it's it's completely accidental, and then they become self-aware <laughs> and sentient and conscious, um, and they all converge at the junkyard where there's this great big fucking construct. It's like a goddamn transformer. And what happens is these constructs will move about the city in their their functions, and then they will go back to the junkyard to hook themselves into the big construct conscious consciousness and download their information. So this construct gets smarter and smarter and smarter, but it also has a human avatar that speaks with Isaac and the others. It's essentially a corpse with his skull opened up and wires and electrodes, and yeah, it's it's awesome. Um, <laughs> now, when Yagarek is talking to Isaac about how to fly again, and he brings up, well, what about torque? Somebody said, you know, can you use torque? And what we find out is that there's um, a pi- the pirate wars that happened some hundred, several hundred years ago, and they used torque, um, like, like bombs, I think, torque to as a weapon, but it was worse than atomic bombs. It was worse than Chernobyl. Uh, even though the cockroaches were affected and suffered horrifying mutations. Um, and you can read about that on page 230 of Pretty Doe Street Station, because I'm not going into it because I don't do cockroaches. But there are also things called color bombs, and color bombs were dumped in mass in Surak, 
this this place called Surak in order to cover the torque damage because it was just so horrible. And now, um, in the middle of all of this that's going on, we've got striking Vajinoi dock workers. Um, now, I mentioned that the, the Vajinoi are the water race, um, so obviously they make very good dock workers. And I forgot to mention, um, they have what's called watercraft, where they can essentially mold water like dough. Um, they can turn water to do whatever they want. And the dock workers want better conditions and better wages, so they start to, so they strike. And they essentially cut a channel <laughs> into the middle of the uh, the gross tar, into the middle of the river. And they are joined by human dock workers, and so these human dock workers are accused of being race traders, um, which is always a lovely phrase. But what happens is they're they're starting to win. The, the, the Vaginoi and the human, the, the striking humans in Vaginoi are succeeding it's going it's going in their direction and then out of nowhere fucking men of war show up and they are literally man of war jellyfish <laughs> hovering over the crowds with humans riding them in these harnesses that have no shit been stitched into the jellyfish yeah it's it's horrible they're hovering over the crowds and so their tentacles their stingers are hanging down all over everyone now the militia that are in the crowd um, fighting the the striking dock workers, they have um, basically what are, are man of war hide vests, uh, right gear. So they're not getting stung, but the humans are, and the the vaginoi are. The you know the strikers are, are getting stung right and left, and it's horrifying. And so I was look. That's this is when I started to research the. Um, the, the riots and the, the unionization and the union busting during the Industrial Revolution and when the Pinkertons were involved. And one of the things that I notated, um, would the Pinkertons have been better or worse than these man and war jellyfish? Because the Pinkertons were fucking horrific during the actual union busting. They were terrible. And um, while I was researching it, I actually found that Pinkerton himself wrote a book called Strikers, Communists, Tramps, and Detectives. <laughs> Um, so if you're interested, you can look that one up. Uh, yeah, he was good man. He was a good man. Let me just say, um, but when all of this is going on in Kelt, and it's taking place in a place called Keltry, and while all of this is going on, this is when Benjamin Flex is, um, captured. They raid the, the, um, the meat warehouse, the, the the slaughterhouse, and they capture him. A police state comes in, takes over, um, and what we find out is that the government has always known about the Runnegate Rampant and where it was located, but they didn't bother with it until it became politically expedient because of all the shit that's happening in the city, and so Benjamin is taken away. Um, <clears throat> so that is the stage that has been set, and what's happening is... Mr. Motley is essentially a crime boss and a drug dealer. And there is a new drug on the market called Dream Shit that just, it's, it gives just fucked up dreams. It's almost like you get into other people's dreams. You can see what other people are dreaming about and your dreams are really, really intense. It's really expensive. It's, you don't need very much of it and it just fucks your shit up for days. Um, now, at the same time, 
there is because Isaac is buying flying creatures of every kind um, some of this on the black market he is given this caterpillar this gross little caterpillar um, he's going to see what happens to it he puts it in a cage but the thing won't eat and then a contact that Isaac knew showed up it was a drug dealer who happened to have some dream shit in his pocket the caterpillar smells the dream shit freaks out they feed it to him and he starts to get huge and what we're eventually going to end up with this caterpillar was just one of um, a group of four and or, or is one of a group and so the rest of them go where they're supposed to they go to mr motley they're raised up and the dream shit is actually their excrescence it's what nurtures them and turns them into what's called slake moths uh, so the slake moths are loose in the city is what we end up with um because of all this slake moths take over the city and you can't really they can't be stopped because they're not in this dimension fully they're within they're they're between dimensions so they're really really you can't just shoot them and kill them and also you can't look at them head on because of their wings will mesmerize you but they can only go after things that are, are sentient that have a consciousness so like the constructs the robots they can't stop the robots they can't stop cats or dogs it's only things that are, are fully aware um so all of this is going on, and so this is this is happening in the middle of everything, and so, <laughs> so what happens in order to fight the slake moths? We are introduced to one of the most terrifying creatures that I have ever come across, and anything that I have <laughs> ever read in my entire life. Um, he's called the Weaver, and there are actually he's called the Weaver, but there are numerous weavers. They are sp- big spider-like creatures. They have, you know, the, the spider bodies, the spider legs, but one set of legs has little hands, has little human hands with fingers. But the the weaver speaks in this beautiful, disjointed, frightening poetry, and. He travels, him him and and other weavers, there were weaver wars at one point, they travel through a literal worldwide web. They can see everything. They are woven into the weft of the world. And the, the, the problem with a weaver is that beauty and aesthetics are the only things that matter to them, but their definition of beauty may not be our definition of beauty. Um... And this can verify, you know, or this can um, vary from whether leaving a dandelion in the ground or plucking it, what is more beautiful, to leaving an army alive or slaughtering it, what is more beautiful. That's the the vagaries and the extremes that they go to. Um, Because at one point in the book, when they first go to meet the, or they try to to get the, the weaver to help them. And he cuts off the ears, I think the right ears of everybody in the room. Just because, because it's more beautiful. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And he likes scissors. He collects scissors. Um, I can't remember what he collected before that, but when they want to talk to him, they have to bring, oh, it was chess pieces, I think, before that. But he changed his mind and wanted scissors, and the mayor comments about how they went through several different people that were turned inside out before they realized the weaver wanted scissors now, and he just collects scissors. Yeah, it's... He is unlike anything I have ever read about, and he is just 
fucking terrifying, but he's the only thing that can go after the Slake Mods because he can move in and out of dimensions the way they do. Even when the, the mayor approaches um, the, the ambassador from Hell about helping with the Slake Mods, he the, Hell won't even help. They're afraid of the Slake Mods. Every, anything with a consciousness, anything with a higher consciousness is in danger from the Slake Mods, except for the Weaver. Um, but the Weaver is, again, a danger in and of himself. So, but he's, he's really, he's hard to explain. You have to read the book and read the way he speaks. And <laughs> as with many things, what I found out, um, this was the first time that I listened to the audio version of it was for this. And the, the, the actor, the voice actor that does the audio book, <laughs> oh my God, it is so creepy when he does the Weaver. It's perfect. Um, and actually I'd forgotten. I, my brother, a few years ago, um, Brother Blue Stocking, um, I actually got him to read these books, and he loved them, and so I sent him a text message. I'm like, I'm rereading Perdido, and I forgot how terrifying the Weaver is, and he just responded with this em- emojis of scissors and an ear and a spider. So, yeah, it's, he, yeah, that was one thing that we talked about long, for a long time, was the Weaver and how creepy he was. Um, so that's everything that's going on, is that Isaac has to try to stop this creature that he unwittingly unleashed, unleashed on the world. Um, but it's all mixed up with this filthy city and remade people and the horrible things that have been done to them. And again, you know, who we are when we lose a part of ourselves because Yagarek is, he's been punished. His, you know, his wings have been taken away. And so what happens is Isaac is eventually approached, I think by another Garuda who, no, he is approached, that's right, he is approached by the Garuda whose choice Yagarek uh, took away. She tracks Yagarek, she finds him, she speaks to Isaac about what he's doing, and she says, please, you can't do this. You know, he was punished, his wings were taken away, he did this, and so Isaac, he feels betrayed by Yagarek when he finds out what happened, and he just, he leaves him to his own fate and goes away. And that's kind of the end of the book. Everybody just kind of scatters and disperses. And we don't really know what happens um, until the scar, um, the next book, when we find out that everybody is being rounded up and that Bellis is on the run. And now Bellis, um, like I said, Bellis was accomplished in her own right, a very intelligent woman, um, brilliant linguist. So she takes a job as a translator on a ship for, um, she's supposed to translate for a trip they're taking to see the Cray, the Cray folk. Um, she actually can't speak the language of the Cray. So, but she learns really, really, really fast. She has someone teach it to her. She gets the job. She's on the ship and the ship is captured by pirates. Now, before the ship gets captured by pirates, what we do learn, one thing that we learned is that um, there is offshore drilling that takes place in New Crobe, or in um, in, ba- in Balog. Um, we'll get into that more later. But once they get to the place where the Cray live underwater, it's a place called Salka Kaltor. There is another human there, weirdly enough, and he has papers from the government, uh, from the New Crobes and government, that say he can rec- he can um, take over the sh- a ship at any time because he needs to get back. So obviously the captain's not happy, but he has to abide by it. So they're good. They have they're turning around and going back to New Crobuson, which no one's happy about. And then the pirates come, and the captain and his second in command are killed, and everyone else is taken off to the floating city of Armada. Um, 
and it's described as the sum of history's lost ships. And it's it's really amazing. And it is surprisingly bureaucratic and well-governed. Um, it's a known black market. Now, when you're captured, you stay and you work and you live your life or you die. You don't leave. Now, there are people who will... There are residents who can leave, but they are highly respected, highly trusted residents um, that are allowed to leave and go out and come back. But new people, they don't leave. They stay. Uh, So Bellis is not happy, um, but she does what she has to do. And she is given a job in the, (laughs) and I shit you not, the Grand Gears Library. It's amazing. Um... And she'll start doing some research and finding some things out. Uh, now, Armada is infested with monkeys, interestingly enough, and they're mean and they're nasty. Um, there is a re-education jail for people who don't immediately take to the place. They are put in jail. That's where most of the the um, the sailors on the ship had to go. I didn't. It's not going well. Um, it doesn't. Yeah, they're not pleased to be there. And <laughs> there is <laughs> there is. It's it's very interesting because there's there's people that work on Armada, there's people that work underneath Armada in the water, constantly shoring it up and you know doing repairs and things of that nature. And so we find out that there is a dolphin security chief named Bastard John, and he swims around and he chatters angrily at everybody. But <laughs> when I read the book, and it was even worse when I was listening to it, um, the way I always pictured. Uh, Bastard John, the security chief, was a dolphin with like a little uh, hat on, like a little police hat, (laughs) swimming around under our armada, bitching at everybody. So if you read The Scar, I hope you picture Bastard John with a little policeman's hat swimming around under there, um, because that's what I I like, a little vest, because that's what I always see. Um, But what ends up, there's... On the boat with Bellis, it's not just citizens or people going to uh, this colony that they're supposed to be going to. There's also prisoners who are being sent to the colony to work, uh, remade prisoners, one of which is a man named um, Tanner Sack. And he is actually a pretty good guy. We don't know what he did. We're not told what he did. He was an engineer. He's in prison. He's remade, had these tentacles attached to his chest for no reason that he entered. The judge gave some ridiculous, stupid reasoning behind it. There really is no conceivable reason why this happened to him. But he, what he finds when he gets onto um, Armada and he's given work, he's supposed to be, because he's an engineer, he's given work underneath Armada, um, shoring things up, so he has to wear the dive helmet. But his tentacles that he had just kept wrapped around him, they were gray and they were dying and they were gross. And he just kept them kind of wrapped around him and hadn't really wanted to think about it too much. But as he's immersed in the water, in the, in the briny, the salt water, his tentacles come to life. Um, and he's, over time, he starts to realize that he can actively control them, like his arms or his legs. He has control over his tentacles. And so what he ends up doing is... Because he's got to wear the helmet, the dive helmet, um, and it kind of limits what he can do under the water. So he actually voluntarily goes to see the ship doctor and asks to have further alterations done. He asks to have further remaking done to him to more effectively function, 
because he has devoted himself wholeheartedly to Armada. He, he, that is his home now. And um, so he goes and he has gills put in and these organisms are introduced to his body that uh, lubricates his body constantly to help him move through the water better. Um, he's got webbed hands and feet now. And it's, he's happy. And what happens when he first wakes up from this additional, and the doctor is so kind. And the doctor is, because he's never really done a remaking like this, um, this to this extent. So they didn't know how it was going to come out. But the doctor is so excited about what he's done for Tanner. And when Tanner first wakes up after the surgeries and the, the remaking, and he is, disoriented because his first because he he's hurting when he wakes up. I mean it's surgery. And so he his first impression is that he's back in the punishment factory. Um and the doctor's got to calm him down and as he's looking at his body and at the scarring and um you know that's going to that's there from the surgeries and what the doctor says to him he says scars are not injuries. A scar is a healing. After injury, a scar is what makes you whole. Sorry for getting a little weepy on that one. That was weird. Um, <laughs> I just, I've, we all have scars. We all, every single one of us bears damage and scars from, you know, our lives. None of us have had perfect lives. And to look at a scar that way, that it's not an injury. This, this means that you are healing. So... Tanner is home. He's happy. He's, you know, flying through the water. He's a fish man. I mean, he's got to keep his, you know, his tentacles brined, you know, most of the time. But he's happy. And so for him, Armada is now home. New Crobazon is not home. Um, not really. Armada is home. But for Bellis, New Crobazon is still home. And But the more we learn about her... And the more we learn about her life in New Crobazon, it starts to become clear that it is it home because you love it, or is it home because it's what you know, and it's what's familiar to you, and you know it's it's where you grew up. And so, what ends up happening? The man that had commandeered the ship um, in Soccer Kaltor. He was still there when the pirates attacked, but nobody, Bellis didn't say anything about who he was. Uh, the captain was killed. So his name is um, Silas Fennec, and he is an undercover agent, supposedly, for New, for New Crobazon. Bellis doesn't tell anybody who he is. Uh, she keeps it quiet. They develop a relationship, and it does become a sexual relationship, but it's not really passionate so much as, and it's not even really comfort. It's, this is someone who's familiar as someone who's from home. And again, it, it's clinging to those things that are home, but is it really home? Um, and one of the the biggest things that we come across in this one, um, the idea that the right, the, the, the wrong thing, even when done for the right reason, it is still the wrong thing. And what Bellis... What Silas tells Bellis is that he was, um, he had met the Grindylow, that the, um, they're in the Cold Claw Sea, and the Grindylow are kind of mythological to the people of New Crobazon. Nobody's ever really seen them and lived to tell the tale. 
and you don't just go hang out with the Grindylo, but apparently you can because that's where Fennec was, and he was uh, undercover there. And <laughs> what he tells Ballas is that he was undercover there because he heard that you know they were they were planning something. So he tells Ballas that the Grindylo are going to attack Nucrobas and they're going to come down the the, the cold through the cold claw sea, and there's a way for them to get right into Nucrobas and an attack. And Bellis believes Fennec, um, even, even though she's not there anymore, and even though she's terrified of going back to New Crobazon right now, she doesn't want it to die. She doesn't want it to be overrun. So they go through this big, dramatic, um, very involved plot, very elaborate plot to get news back to, to get his news back to New Crobazon. And she ends up enlisting Tanner Sack in it. And she plays on his, his you know, fleeting remaining memories of home and he agrees to help her. Um, the problem is that Fennec wasn't trying to stop an invasion of New Crobazon. Fennec wanted the New Crobazon Navy to come get him because he had been scoping out the Grindylo to attack them because they had resources that New Crobazon wanted. But he's got a whole notebook full of his um, his sketches and his plans and details, detailed invasion plans of the Grindylow. And but he doesn't send it back to uh, New Crobas, and he sends them word that he has this notebook and he has this information because he wants them to rescue him. And there are what we find out later. The the reason that people can that are from Armada can always find Armada again and come back to it is these special compasses, lodestones is what they call them. He managed to get a hold of a lodestone and send it to New Crobazon. That's how uh, the New Crobazon Navy finds them. And so they attack, and it's devastating, and it's horrible. And Tanner knows that this is because of what he did for Bellis, who did this for Silas. Um, and they both confess. Uh, Tanner and Bellis both go and confess because um, some bad, some very bad things happen, and I'll talk about him in just a second. But... What also happens is the Grindylow have been chasing um, Silas and find him. And so a second attack happens on Armada, and it's just terrible. They're uh, they're horrible. But before all this happens, there was a cabin boy on the ship that made friends with Tanner um, when it was, when you know, before they got attacked by Armada. His name was Shekel. And... So Shekel comes onto Armada and gets a job. He's a he gets in with another with a child. He's, he's a young. He's like 15, 16. He gets involved with the children on Armada, and um, but he's very good friends with Tanner. And he finds out that Bellis, which he, I can't remember what he calls her, because um, her name's Bellis Coldwine. He's calling her Cold Lady or something like that. I can't remember, but um, he becomes really good friends with her, and she teaches him to read because he didn't know how to read. And he is so, when he learns how to read, he is so angry that nobody ever told him about reading, that no one told him what kind of freedom he can have by learning how to read. And what he also figures out is that as he's learned, the language is called ragamole, and there's also another language called salt that everybody speaks on Armada. And when he learns that other languages and other people use the same alphabet as the ragamole alphabet, he can't read those languages, but he's happy that other people can discover the same joy that he's discovered. And it's just, it's beautiful and it's 
gorgeous and he actually finds love and depending on the the woman that he falls in love with is older i don't but they never really tell us how old angevin is um she's a remade woman she's remade um into like a, a rolling thing from the thighs down i'll let you think about how he and angevin <laughs> have their relationship it is described in the book um, but he ends up, when Armada attacks, Shekel ends up dying. Or no, when the Grindy Low attack. Um, Shekel ends up dead. And it's horrific. And Tanner is destroyed because he loves Shekel like a son. Um, so one thing I will tell you about China Mayville, don't look for upliftment, uplifting hope. <laughs> um, he is one of those he kills without mercy. And you will you you will cry, especially listen to the audiobook. Jesus, I cried. Um, but the, one of the, the the things that we take away again, like I said, the wrong thing done for the right reason is still the wrong thing. But the other thing that the other takeaway from this is that Silas leads the new Crobas and Navy all the way to Armada and stands by while all these people are slaughtered because he wants to go home. And so how do you measure, how can we ethically measure and morally measure the cost of our own lives against those of a thousand other people? Why did he believe his life was worth the thousands of people that were on Armada, that all these people were going to die just to rescue his ass? So how do we, you know, how do we decide that our life is worth more than someone else's? You know, who makes that decision and why? And, you know, what's the cost of what you have done? And that's one of the big overriding factors in this one is, and also in Pretty Death Street Station um, and Iron Council, it's the weight of our actions and how what we do affects the people around us, even if we don't know that it's going to have an effect on them. Um, because, you know, Isaac did what he did in the first book, and he's a renegade scientist, and he took these actions that put people in jeopardy, and so he has no idea. He'll he'll never know that Bellis is running because of something he did. His actions had an effect on someone he hadn't seen in five years. Um, so we can't, we can never really count the cost of what we've done and how it affects someone else. We We don't know. Now... The Iron Council has an interesting ending. <laughs> um, or not Iron Council, the Scar. But like I said, the Scar is one of my favorites. Um, and when we learn about the lovers and their weird scarring rituals and, you know, Bellis finds out that there's a way that... There's a place on the ship where you can go and it's it's secret. Someone shows it to her and it's right under the lover's bedroom so she can hear them going at it and... To her, it sounds so desperate and obsessive and, you know, not doesn't really, it doesn't sound like love. It sounds like obsession. And it will be proven out later um, that it wasn't as eternal as they wanted everyone to believe it was. Um, now, once we go to Iron Council, again, this is sometime afterwards. Uh, we're back at New Crobazon. And... Um, Censorship has, is running rampant. Um, is Renegade rampant? <laughs> Censorship is running rampant in the city. Um, and so when we see this flexible puppet theater, uh, there is actually a censor there. There are censors at public performances. 
And so the censor comes running up and the performance is canceled because this troop is guilty of rudeness to new Crobazon in the second degree and is hereby disbanded pending an inquiry. And there's a big fight that breaks out. There's an anti-Xenian group um, called the Quillers. And the descriptions of them, it's it's very, um, kind of reminded me of Charlottesville, Virginia, and the neo-Nazis, and Face Punch Spencer. So there's this anti-Xenian group that's running around. Um, we also have hints of gentrification happening. But one of the things that... Um, Mayville uh, explores in this one is golemetry. Now, we discussed golems. We've discussed those before, um, most specifically in the Book of Esther, if you'll remember. Creatures made of clay. But golemetry, thaumaturgy was the big science in, you know, in, in Perdido Street Station. And this one, it's golemetry. Um, I didn't give you a definition because there's really not one, like an actual definition. Um, but... For one of the interviews I read that for, for China Mieville, um the science of golemetry, it's a, a recognition of temporal rhythms and ecologies that flow through the body. And there are, as the, the train carrying the Iron Council, it ends up tripping some golem traps. And Mieville has described them as contacts or materials laid into a strange and precise order that fold time into a specific shape confronting the train's cowcatcher. Now, what happens here, um, and the reason that you need to be reading China Mieville, he writes a lot of stuff, not just these these three steampunky ones. The reason that you need to be reading him um, in this part of Iron Council, um, the way it's described is that it's one of the longest sentences in the novel, and it punctuates the manipulation of time with commas and spaces and one imprecise adjective after another, the sentence linguistically performs a digital slicing of time and uses metaphors that hesitate from fully describing what's occurring. So bear with me. I'm going to read you the longest sentence that's in the novel, and it's you can see why you need to read him. Okay, so they combined into a careful and exact music of breaking, snaps, and tolling iron that added to flawless beat of the train. And for seconds, for that snatch of time, there was a pulse magic, a palimpsest tempo, and in that moment, complexity... Each accented block of noise intervening in time, cutting time into shape so that as the huge hunter's head of the Iron Council emerged from the rock folds and sink lines into open land, the moments themselves were hacked by the noise, axed into shape, an intervention through the mechanism that sucked energy from Judah Lowe, the great self-taught thaumaturge of New Crobism, the crude, vigorous, ineluctable, the precision of that parceled-up, reshaped time, was an argument in time, reshaped the time itself and made it, a golem, time golem, which stood in its ab life, a golem of sound and time, stood and did what it was instructed to do. Its instruction became it, its, its instruction, its existence, its command to just be, and so it was. And that's why you need to be reading China <laughs> His work is beautiful. His writing is, it's full and it's thick and it's dense and it's descriptive in the most unbelievable ways and it's beautiful and it's violent and it's gross and it's nauseating and it's uplifting and I, it's hard to explain. You just, you have to read them if you've never read them before, but these three especially are just unreal. Um, and this one, what one of the books um, from 
the Roger Whitson book, Steampunk and 19th Century Digital Humanities, they've said that uh, Iron Cancel is, and it definitely is, one of his most pointedly political novels, um, and that it argues the the basic project of the Iron Cancel is to keep hope alive and to insist upon the horizon of socialist revolution, even in the current absence of entirely specific particulars that could define the possibility of revolution. And it's just... He punches you in the face over and over again with these concepts and makes you think about, and again, makes you think about your actions because the characters in the book don't know what, well, to a certain extent they do. I mean, Bella sees what happens. She sees the effect of her actions. She thinks that she's just, you know, getting word back home to save this city that essentially chased her away. But she's duped. She allowed herself to be duped by Silas Fennec. She allowed herself to be taken in by him and to believe him because she believed the lie about the city. Even though she was from New Corobazon and she was chased away from it, she still believed the lie of the beautiful city back home. And because of what she did, even though it was well-intentioned, she got a lot of people killed. And Tanner Sack, she implicated Tanner Sack in this and helped him get involved in the destruction of a city that meant everything to him. This city gave him freedom. She felt like a prisoner. Tanner was freed. Tanner was released. He was so happy to be working there and working underneath the rulers and doing this grand project, being involved in this grand project that the city was taking on to capture this god whale. Um, Now we'll find out later that, as with most things, the lovers actually had a deeper plan than just harnessing the Avonk to be more efficiently and swiftly pulled around the ocean. Um, the scar, the, the titular scar, it's a place of unmaking and unreality. It's literally a scar. If, if you've ever watched Doctor Who um, and you remember the first season uh, that Amy was on, it, the first Matt Smith season, um, 11, when 11 showed up, and that whole season there was a split in the skin of the world or in the, in the universe, uh, the, this, you know, this, the crack. That is essentially what the scar is. It is a split in the skin of this world. And it's strange and unreal, and this is where they're being pulled. It's, uh, they're being pulled through this, this sea at the lover's behest, but there's a lot more that's going on, and Armada finally, the people of Armada finally, they're not, ha- the bad things are happening. Very bad things are happening. Everybody gets scared, and there will be something of a mutiny because of it. Because someone in power decided that this was the best thing for it. That Because Armada was never about exploration. <laughs> Armada is a black market. Armada is really a place where slaves can go and be free. Armada is a place where the remade can go and be free made. It's not for explanation. It's not for grand experimental voyages. And that is what the lovers decided to do um, and didn't discuss this with everyone. They just did it because they felt they knew best. And so, again, we have this governing body making decisions for the people below it when it's not the decisions that the people below it may want but they think they know better, um, and that never happens. So, 
Yeah, I've gone on for almost an hour alone just about these. Um, <laughs> told you it was going to be a longer episode because these books are so, like I said, they're thick and they're full and there's so much to them and there's so much to think about. Um, and they're funny. I mean, they're funny. They're clever. Um, there are very tender moments because in the first book, one of the things and like so there's so much that I can't even get into all of it. In the first book, one of the things that has to be dealt with is the fact that Isaac is I mentioned the Kepri woman Lynn, who's got the head of the scarab and the body of a woman. Isaac and Lynn are having a scandalous secret affair because he's human and she is not. And that is weird in the in the course of the book. It's, it, you don't do it. Now, because Lynn is an artist um, and Isaac is a renegade scientist, it's kind of accepted in her circles, not so much his. So he can be free and open when he's with her and her friends in Slakus Fields in the bars. You know, the artists think it's, it's, it's an artist's life. It's very scandalous. But the, the serious people... They would be scandalized. It's bad. You know, he, he's having an affair with an insect woman. Um, the bugs is what sometimes they're called um, derogatorily. So cross-species relationships is not um, looked on favorably. Now, that doesn't... And there are also, um, as far as the remades go, it's not just humans that are remade. Everybody is remade in the Punishment Factories. So there's remade Cactusay. There's remade uh, Kepri. There's remade Vadyanoi. Um, they're everywhere. And again, they have to find work where they can. But they're generally shit on, um, except in places like Armada, where they are free and they find purpose and you know, a way to live their lives and deal with these things that happen to them. Now, in Iron Council, and the third one is when... Um, like I said, we keep hearing about Toro, and Toro finally makes an appearance. And it, Toro is not who they think Toro is at first. It's not till near the end that we find out who, you know, that it's the lady with the baby arms on her head. Um, and she's been fighting Nucrobas ever since because of what they did to her. And you can argue that, yes, she did something terrible. She let her child die, but, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Um it's it's rough. It's the remaking is rough. It is absolutely terrible, um, and some people are left completely useless and defenseless. Um, there's one guy that they was supposed to be. Isaac went to see him at a freak show because he thought it was an actual Garuda and he wanted to study a Garuda's wings. It wasn't an actual Garuda. It was a guy that had been punished and remade by having you know these these wings badly attached to his back and this horrible broken beak attached to his face it was nauseating but bodily autonomy um definitely plays a, a big role in this as well um you know the, the power the government has over our bodies and ourselves um so as much as i want to i'd like to keep talking about this but there's so much and it's it's so hard to go into all of it um, hopefully that's enough to get you to want to read it, <laughs> read them if you haven't. I do highly recommend the audiobooks. They're really well done and they, they add something to it. Um, they really do, but just the competing concepts and the ideas and the, the, just the sheer amount of shit that is happening in these books is bonkers. So... I highly recommend you go find the Balog Trilogy at Perdido Street Station, The Scar and Iron Council, and 
let me know if you, because <laughs> I guarantee if you read Perdita Street Station, Bella's Cold Wine's name is going to pass right by you, and you're not going to realize that you saw it. Um, you'll have to do a little search for her name to find where she is because it's so fast, but she's the entirety of the second book, you know. And she's she's an interesting character. Um, she's hard to like, but she is weirdly likable. So go get these, read them, let me know what you think. Um, you know, talk to me, share with me. You know, China Mieville himself is, uh, if you've not looked him up, if you've not looked into him, he's an interesting dude, um, big dude. <laughs> he is very fascinating, uh, not on the social medias, so you won't be able to find him on Twitter or any of that, but give him a read and then look me up and tell me how you felt about it and what you thought and let me know if the weaver scared the crap out of you like he scared the crap out of me because you know i was thinking if this is one of those where i would really love to see it made into a tv show like a you know a limited event tv show but i'm also scared that they wouldn't be able to do it right but the con the the, the, the thought of seeing the weaver <laughs> i don't know if i can handle that um or the slake mods for that matter or the grindilo it's all it's all scary and terrifying um so look me up, let me know what you thought, and uh, let's have a chat about new Crobazin and uh, remades. <laughs> All righty, thank you guys. Do you have foreign engineers building your railroads? No, yow. Foreign bankers holding your debt? No, yow. Foreign gunboats in your harbor? <laughs> then you need Mohammedan and Salaspi. Chartered purveyors of bespoke modernities since October 18, 1816. We know Reaper drone is the new Gatling gun. We know intermodal cargo container is the new opium chest. We know the early 21st century is the new late 19th. And we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the intertubes at www mohammedanandcelestial.com At Mohammedan and Celestial, when we hear the great powers invoke civilization, we chamber around in our C-96 on your behalf. You are listening to the Steampunk Dollhouse with Librarian Blue Stocking. Thank you, Osgood. And if any of my literary listeners would like to hear some truly quality steampunk short fiction, I would suggest you head over to the Gallery of Curiosities with Osgood. Uh, the gallery is an anthology series, and they do weird steampunky short fiction that is really, really amazing. Uh, and you can trust me because I know this shit. So go check out the Gallery of Curiosities. Um, they had one a few weeks ago that was amazing with uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, who was a <laughs> gunfighter. Um, I, yeah, I can't even begin to describe the story. So go over to Gallery of Curiosities and give them a listen. Now, I do have a couple of things to discuss in other podcast news. So uh, the Clockwork Cabaret, if you aren't listening to them, you should be. I don't know why you're not. But they are looking for guest voices for their April Fool's episode. I think they're still looking for that. So uh, give them a shout at clockworkcabaret at gmail.com. And you can also find them at agonyauntstudios.com. Uh, find them on Twitter. Um, 
I don't think they really they are on Facebook as much. They're really active on Twitter, but they want to have some guest voices. So if you'd like to have your voice on a podcast, contact the Clockwork Cabaret and let them know that you are available, and they will take it from there. Uh, let's see. I've been running the trailer for um, Brass, the audio drama podcast. Uh, that's the one that they sent me. That's what they had at the time. Uh, it's for season one, but season two is actually out and available right now, um, or it's dropping uh, regularly on the podcatchers. Uh, they are very good, very entertaining, so I suggest you give them a listen as well. Now, in publishing news, uh, the audio drama Sage and Savant, the tales of Sage and Savant, they actually uh, have received a book deal from Edge Science Fiction Fantasy Publishing. Publishing um, Eddie Louise, who writes Sage and Savant and also stars in it, she is she's been given a series of four books, and it's Tales of Sage and Savant. Uh, Transmigrations will be the first book, and it is based on the podcast, and it will be published in ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook formats. And the ebook will be available for pre-order um, here in a few days, actually, or actually tomorrow it looks like, and then it will be available on all devices on April 30th for the trade paperback. That will be available. Um, you can pre-order from the author uh, starting March 23rd, and it will be available from Amazon on April 16th and from regular book retailers on May 1st. So the links, of course, for all of this is always going to be in the show notes. So check that out if you want to grab uh, that sh- the start of the book series for the Tales of Sage and Savant. Uh, in other book news, friend of the show, Michael Rigg, the storyteller for Steamroller's Adventure Podcast. Um, that podcast is, or the the game is based on his his Heart of Bronze series. The first one was Clockwork Looking Glass. It actually came out several years ago. But he has now uh, also released Clockwork Pandora. Uh, that is available on all formats, uh, Kindle, paperback. So go check that out. It is on Amazon. And actually, I believe it's part of the Amazon Unlimited if you get the Kindle version. Yeah, it's Amazon Unlimited or Kindle Unlimited if you get that version. So it wouldn't cost you anything if you already have the subscription. Um, but it is $1.99 on Kindle to buy it. So Go take a look. Give it a shot. We do love Michael Rigg and Robbie, so give them some support. Uh, let's see. Other Steampunks podcast news. I am going to be on Storypunks this week. Yay! I think it's this week that it's going up, and I did an interview with Cindy, uh, the host of that show, back in January, and it's going to be airing, like I said, I believe this week. And so what we're going to do, once she gets it posted on her site, I am going to cross-post over here on my feed. Um, But as an added bonus, Cindy uh, video records all of the interviews as well and posts them on YouTube. So you guys will actually get to see me. Um, It's kind of a weird experience. I don't see myself on video a lot, so that was a little strange watching that. Uh, I didn't know I was quite so (laughs) cartoon-like. But go check that out. Uh, I will let you guys know as soon as it comes up. I, I think it'll drop Tuesday, but I'm not positive. Um, so go check it out. Let me know what you think. And one final thing I wanted to tell you guys about is that there is, um, in England, Lincoln, there is something called the Asylum Steampunk Festival Conference. And this will be taking place the 25th and the 26th of August, uh, 2018. 
and what they are, uh, it actually looks like they started this last year, 2017. So they are calling right now for, they have, they have a call for papers going out right now, um, through the end of March, Friday, the 30th of March, 2018, they are welcoming the proposals and what they want. Um, they're looking for, it's not limited to, but they would like some papers on multicultural steampunk, um, Asian, African, Latin American, and Australasian steampunk, the current, the cultural functioning of global steampunk, um, steampunk and imperialism and anti-imperialism, and all the good stuff. A lot of what we talk about on this show, actually. Um, and I have submitted to them already. Um, I heard about this in January, actually. And so as soon as I heard about it, I submitted over the abstract for my conference paper, the Michael Moorcock paper. Um, but then they contacted us, me and... Um, Doc Prashan and a couple of the people on Twitter this weekend um, saying, hey, why don't you submit your papers? So I already had, but I said that I would mention this as well on the show. Uh, so, you know, give it a shot. Go take a look. See if you think you've got some good words to <clears throat> share with fellow steampunks in England in August. Um, and I'm not counting on getting my paper accepted. It's, I mean, I'm still really new at all of this, but we'll see what happens. And I think that... Oh, uh, one more thing. I do, obviously, if you've listened to the show this far, um, I do a lot of cross-promotion for the people that I like. Um, we've talked before at Steampunk Podcasting, um, there wasn't a whole lot. Within the last year, it's kind of exploded. <laughs> there's a whole lot of really good steampunk podcasts now. Um, there's a bunch of really good audio dramas. There's the role-playing games. There's the music. There's the books. There's, there's just the you know the connection in the festivals. So if you have a steampunk podcast or something that you think might fit in with what I'm doing over here, let me know. Uh, if you have a song that you want me to play, let me know. Again, I can't really afford to license any songs. Um, I can buy it on iTunes. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but if you have, you know, something that you want me to share with the general public, uh, contact me, let me know. I'm actually pretty easygoing. Um, and I also want to thank you guys for putting up with my <laughs> my stuffy nose and my sniffling throughout this episode. It was bad, I know. I actually had to record the episode over two days, and uh, there was a lot of pauses in there because of my, my face exploding continuously. So I appreciate your patience, um, and I always appreciate you, you guys coming to listen and let me know what you think. Um, it's a labor of love, and, you know, I, I don't do it for anybody else, but... I do it for the good of the steampunk community. I don't know. That sounds very grandiose. Um, I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other. So come find me, Facebook, Twitter. I'm always around. And let's have a conversation. And with that, we are done. We will see you in a few weeks for 15 Feet of Gaslit Snow or How a Spirit Walker and a Soldier Risk Their Souls with Karen Lawachi's The Gaslight Dogs. Studios production and bears Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt and Josephine Davis. 
Transmission alert is provided by Library Field Agent Robbie Copperstocking Adderkopf. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Are you a smart, sassy, and undeniably damaged teenager who's tired of facing down death just to get an education because the lawmakers who are supposed to keep us all safe have sacrificed their souls to the NRA and thrust us into a dystopian nightmare that's crying out for justice and searching for a chosen one? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at SPDHPod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue stocking out.